2009, November 13th. Today is Astronomy 141, Lecture 34, The Habitability Zones Around Stars. So, we've dealt with the lives of stars and the deaths of stars. And we've got an idea of how long it is a star can shine and what are some of the properties of stars that distinguish themselves as you change the star's mass, the star's type, and so forth. That was really basically a highly condensed version of a whole chunk of Astronomy 162 we normally do in a couple of weeks. So if it was a little whirlwind, it's because I was very carefully picking the topics to emphasize what are the properties of stars that matter to us in this quest for looking about for life around other stars. Today I want to now pick up the question of take that information and apply it to ask the question, where should we be looking for other planets that might be places to harbor life? And so today's topic is going to be to look at the question of habitable zones around other stars. We've already discussed this with the sun. Now I'm going to generalize the topic and look at how that applies to habitability in a stellar context. So today's lecture is going to be looking at this whole question of what are the factors that will affect whether or not a particular star is going to be a habitable planetary environment, a place where I might look for planets that could harbor life. Turns out that there's a very provincial answer to this question. We really were going to focus our, our attention on looking for life that's on rocky planets in the habitable zones of low mass main sequence stars. And we'll say a little bit more about that as we go along. But that's basically the, the point of this exercise. We're going to say, where is the most likely place to look? We're going to then ask the question of, remember we talked about habitable zones for stars, let's generalize that, that concept talking about other stars. One of the facts we're going to find out, which isn't too surprising, but you can do it quantitatively, and we will do it quantitatively both here, and of course some of your homework problems do this quantitatively, is to demonstrate that brighter stars have wider, wider habitable zones in space that are further away from their parent star. So it's the first little systematic we have to deal with. Now, it turns out that that means that a fainter star is going to have a close inhabitable zone. However, it turns out that there's some other factors that are going to affect habitability in a planetary context. Once we get into the habitable zone, is that habitable zone really hospitable? Or is it habitable? Are there other things in there that might make it inhabitable even though it formally meets the definition? And we're going to look at three possibilities that can render a habitable zone not very habitable. One of them is that if the habitable zones get very close to their parent stars, the planets can actually become tidally locked to those stars. And that will set up a very nasty situation of a hot near side and a cold far side. Low mass stars, which also turn out to be the ones that are most likely to be a problem for tidal locking, have this problem that while there's lots and lots of low mass M stars in the, in the galaxy, that some of them turn out to be violently super flaring. They basically produce gigantic stellar flares, sometimes called super flares, that can have a really seriously negative impact on your day. Basically, they produce lots of ultraviolet and x-rays. Furthermore, if we go to the other direction, brighter stars, which also have nice, big, fat, habitable zones, albeit a little bit further from their planets, also turn out to be hotter stars. Hotter stars produce an awful lot of ultraviolet radiation. UV radiation could have an impact on making basically a very inhospitable place. You could have a perfectly beautiful Earth-like planet right smack in the middle of the habitable zone, liquid water out the wazoo, and it gets completely sterilized by ultraviolet radiation. So we have to not only look at this somewhat provincial idea of habitability from the point of view of liquid water, 
but also look at some other factors that will begin to narrow down the window we're going to have available to us when we search for stars around other worlds. Or, I'm sorry, <laughs> worlds around other stars that might harbor life. So let's sort of pick up a theme we've, we've, we've done a couple of times in this class, where we say, what are the basic requirements for life? If I'm going to go looking for a life, I want to go look where, where, these, where these requirements are satisfied. But now I want to put them into a planetary context, not just our solar system, not just the Earth, but really much more generalized. And we can really break it down into four basic components that are going to be important to us, meaning these are components of the basic requirements of life that can be determined by asking what kind of star are we looking around. The first of these should be pretty straightforward. It's one that's always there. Life needs a source of energy. And the primary source of energy that we're going to be considering today is sunlight, or in this case, starlight, more generally speaking. What we want is a stable, long-lived source of energy. This energy is used to fuel chemical reactions, and it provides the warmth that permits liquid water to exist on the surfaces of these planets. Are there other possibilities? Sure there are. We could talk about warmth in terms of the size of the planet having tectonic activity, like deep underwater vents on the Earth. We could talk about non-water forms of life. But today I basically want to narrow my focus. I want to just talk about Earth-like life, for no other reason than at least we know it exists. So we're going to basically take a very provincial point of view on this. We're going to look for the car keys under the streetlight, to use the old joke. right? Why is the drunk looking for his car keys under the streetlight? Because the light's better over there. Why are we looking for life on Earth-like planets? Because we know the answer. There's at least life on Earth-like planets, so it seems an obvious place to look. So we're going to look for places where the stars have long, long shining lives, long enough for evolution, for planets to form and life to get a foothold and evolution to do its thing and to permit liquid water. We also are going to want places that have complex chemistry. We want places that are made out of heavy elements, elements heavier than hydrogen and helium. We want carbon, we want liquid water, we want metallic inorganics. All the pieces that we're pretty sure turn out to be important for cellular, cellular structure, cellular metabolism, and cellular chemistry. Does that mean we are expecting life to look like on the Earth? No, maybe it's made of completely different amino acids. For all we know, it's made out of right-handed amino acids. We really don't care, but we do certainly think we need carbon. Are there other possibilities? Sure, but that's not what we're going to talk about today. Then we get into something like, where is the life going to form? It turns out that life wants a place to either stand or at least swim. If you're going to have liquid water, you've got to have some place for that liquid water to pool up. Otherwise, it's kind of useless if it rains out into a deep gas atmosphere. So what we're going to look for are places, planets, that are capable of supporting oceans, large land masses. So that's going to pretty much tell us right away that we're going to be talking about rocky planets. We're not going to be considering gas planets here, because gas planets don't have surfaces. Now, gas planets might have moons. Some of those moons might be Earth-like in their properties. We currently don't have any technologies that are going to let us see those. But we'll keep that in the back of our minds. So we want a place to stand or a place to swim, a place for the liquid water to pool up to do its chemistry thing. And finally, we want what I will call generically benign environmental conditions. Nice weather, low ultraviolet radiation fluxes. I want places with stable, well-regulated climates. That pretty much tells you that you've got an atmosphere which has a self-regulation system. It's not going to go run away and go poof into Venus-like nasty conditions and dry out. It's not going to freeze out like Mars. That kind of goes hand in hand with this whole thing about liquid water. 
But we're really talking about benign, stable conditions, not a nasty place. Not a place that's getting pummeled by asteroids all the time, so you get sterilizing impacts. Every time a microbe finally says, hey, time to evolve, smack. You know, that kind of ruins your day. doesn't work. We also want atmospheres or something, oceans, ice caps, something that will allow you to protect you from ultraviolet radiation. Because ultraviolet radiation, to a first approximation, is bad for life. It induces massive mutations. It probably, in fact, can sterilize if the fluxes get high enough. So these are the four basic requirements that I'm going to be interested in. And if I translate those requirements into a question, what should I go looking for? The answer is going to turn out to be that what I really, the place where I expect these conditions to prevail, just looking at the problem quickly, is I expect them to be on rocky planets in the habitable zones of low mass main sequence stars. Why do I say that? Well, first of all, low ma main sequence stars are the only stars we know of that are capable of producing stable, long-lived nuclear fusion reactions in their cores that will cause them to shine for long periods of time. Now that's true of any main sequence star, but remember that high mass main sequence stars have very short lives compared to low mass main sequence stars. So it's not the entire main sequence of interest to us, but only those stars which I'll call low mass. And low mass here means roughly between three and four times the mass of the sun, which will have main sequence lifetimes of at least a giga year. Because we think you need at least a billion years to make a planetary system, have life get a foothold, that process probably takes the first 500 million years, if we take the Earth as an example. And maybe you need another 500 million years just to give evolution a chime time to actually do something. You also want to have these stars long-lived because it will produce a long-lived, stable source of heat. The sun will sit there shining steadily. It won't be doing anything crazy like blowing up into a red giant or something or blowing up as a supernova. That, that would just be bad. So we're looking for time. It's really one of the things people forget when they, when they play this whole game of looking for life around other worlds and they imagine, oh, I know, let's put a civilization around this O star or B star. You know, evolution, emergence of life, a lot of these planetary processes, geological processes, are slow. They take a long time. One of the things that the, the, the understanding of cosmology and the, the formation of the Earth and the formation of the universe has taught us is there's a lot of time out there. We're talking billions of years. One of the things that you need time for is you need time for planets to form. It takes about 10 million years, I think, on minimum, probably, for a planetary system to form after the star forms. So if the star only lives 3 million years, <laughs> it's going to blow up before it manages to form any planets. You need a chance for life to emerge. Again, we don't know the exact numbers, but if the experience on Earth is any indicator, life emerged sometime within 100 million years after the end of the epoch of heavy bombardment, after the epoch of the last big sterilizing impact on the planet. Once that 100 million years emerged, life seemed to get a foothold real fast. That's actually kind of surprising. In fact, 100 million years being fast may sound like a strange thing to say. But people used to think it took a billion years for life to get started. It may have, in fact, been a lot shorter. So actually, there, we actually have a bit of a hedge, which we didn't have before. And finally, the thing that, again, evolution is one of the greatest, really great ideas in science. And it is one of the most misunderstood ideas. If you listen to people who have a problem with evolution for whatever reason, they say, well, why don't we see evolution in action today? And it's because, well, that's because you only live for about 30, 40 years, you moron. Evolution needs... 
thousands of years, millions of years to operate. Yes, you can see evolution in action if you're a microbiologist watching microbes. But it's really hard to penetrate into people's consciousness that evolution takes time. You have to give it time to work. You're not just going to have life emerge in 100 million years and Mr. Spock isn't going to walk out from behind the rock and say live long and prosper. It's going to take a couple billion years to get there. So you've got to have time. And the star is where you're going to buy the time. You've got to be around a star that isn't going to blow up into a red giant and roast your planet before you get more than pond slime. So it's actually a really pretty tough problem. So we're going to be concentrating on the low end of the main sequence. Everything else, the evolutionary timescales are too fast. The evolutionary stages are violent. You know, in a billion years, after the sun runs out of hydrogen in its core, it goes from... Yeah, maybe two times brighter than it is today to 2,000 times brighter in a billion years. Basically, you roast the planet almost immediately. So just, you don't want to be looking for stars around red giants. Don't waste your time. White dwarfs are all fading out and cooling out. They barely produce enough light to sustain a planet, we think. So we're not going to want to waste our time down there. So what we're really doing is we're saying, look, the galaxy has 200 billion stars. I can't look in detail at every single one of them. Let's narrow it down. Okay, so where do we want to look? Well, the place we want to look is we don't just want to find any planet. We want to find a rocky planet. We need a rocky planet because we need water to be able to pool up to make an ocean or a pond. Ultimately, we'd like land for land animals and land plants or whatever the appropriate equivalent is on some strange planet around some other star. But... We also have to have that planet not just be rocky, but be in the right place. Remember, this is the Goldilocks problem. If you're too close to your star, you get a runaway greenhouse effect, you superheat your atmosphere, you blow off and vaporize all the water, and you dry yourself out, and you get a place that looks like Venus. Surface conditions are 750 degrees Kelvin across the planet. There's no water to be found in any form anywhere on the planet. There's no point in looking for life there unless there are some very bizarre forms of life that we haven't imagined yet. It's not to say it couldn't happen, but it's just not, it's not where I'd be putting my money to bet. Move the planet too far out, and water begins to freeze out of your atmosphere. Once water freezes out of your atmosphere, you shut down liquid chemistry, you're also not going to be a place where you're going to get life. You're not going to get liquid chemistry out, liquid water on the surface. What we really want is we want to be into that just right conditions where there's plenty of liquid water, where you can set up, set up stable climate cycles in a medium-sized atmosphere, and you can basically build something that we think is going to look like the Earth. To do that, you need to be inside your habitable zone. <coughs> now again, this is a very provincial view of life, a, a big objection and a serious objection to using habitable zones as a way of asking the question, where should we look, is we may in fact have very strong counterexamples within our own solar system of life emerging outside of a habitable zone. We think the place to look for life outside the Earth, as you know, is Europa, probably under the ice, under the ice oceans underneath Europa. Europa's way the hell outside the habitable zone. But if it has a source of heat, it has a source of organics, it has a source of liquid water, it's basically hit all of the biochemical requirements. So it's a very good possibility it's there. And this isn't to say that there aren't, in fact, frozen subsurface worlds way outside their habitable zones. Moons of gas giants or maybe just planets or ice balls out in space around other stars that can't be Europa-like if Europa really is a source of life. We don't know for sure yet. We're not going to know for decades at least.
But the reason why we're going to concentrate on the habitable zone and, and the counter-argument to those who say the habitable zone is a useless idea is this. If you have a planet like the Earth, as we're going to develop over the next few lectures, if you have a planet like the Earth, you actually are going to have observable consequences of surface life. I can possibly, plausibly, go out and make an observation if I find an Earth-like planet in its habitable zone, I can ask the question, is there liquid water there? Is there oxygen in its atmosphere? Do I see biomarkers, spectroscopic or otherwise, that indicate, look, there's plant life, animal life, some kind of chemical carbon-based metabolism going on. Yeah, I can speculate about Europa-like, you know, undersea ocean vent life to my heart's content, but I have no way to detect it from the outside. So it's not the place I want to look if I'm looking for a positive answer. And that's the real point of this exercise. We'd like to go up, we'd like to find life. Let's look under the street lamp where the light is better. Let's look where we actually have tests we can perform that will give us a positive answer, not like, oh yeah, there's a rock there with ice on it. If I gotta go there, that's gonna be kind of that's gonna hurt. Save it for future, put it in the visit there if you got time column. If you find one of those around a star, we're not just gonna study it from afar. You better believe we're gonna get galvanized to go there. Okay. So let's look at this idea of a habitable zone more closely and now generalize it to that of other stars. To remind you, the habitable zone around the sun today is a relatively narrow band, which not surprisingly the Earth resides in. The conservative estimate of the size of the habitable zone is that it is basically about a 0.45 astronomical unit zone between 0.95 and 1.4 AUs. So Venus falls outside of the conservative habitable zone, as does Mars. Mars just skirts it for part of its year. If we are somewhat more optimistic, a little bit looser about how we set the requirements for the habitable zone, I can probably widen it to maybe as close to the sun as 0.84 AU, maybe as far from the sun as 0.7 AU. 1.7 AU is probably an interesting number if you're really interested in basically having life on Mars right now. Now that isn't to say we couldn't decide that we want to go live on Mars and maybe try to build an atmosphere on it someday, a process called terraforming. What this really says is Mars is probably just marginally habitable by putting it into the optimistic zone. But because of Mars's small size and because of the details of its history, it lost its atmosphere. It lost the game of being a habitable planet. What the optimistic habitable zone really says is maybe if we moved the Earth out there, it could still stay habitable if I basically push the odds in various directions in its favor. The conservative habitable zone is actually the one I want to concentrate on because that's actually based on some realistic models. It's not just simply an estimation about crude estimates of equilibrium temperature. A, a scientist by the name of James Castings has actually done detailed calculations using detailed climate models on Earth-like planets. These are the same models that people are working on, for example, on this whole question of global warming or doing long-term climate modeling to predict weather patterns in the past or understand paleo weather models. So they really have a lot of, a lot of the real state-of-the-art atmospheric science in it is what actually establishes the, the limits of the, of the uh, conservative habitable zone. And so that's the one I'm going to stick to. This isn't to say that the habitable zones could not be wider. But at this point, I would say that the good science, the good scientific calculations are really on the side of the so-called conservative habitable zone. 
And the way we define the conservative habitable zone is if you put an Earth-like planet with an Earth-like atmosphere in this zone, there will be stable liquid water on its surface. If there's enough water there, basically, you're going to have oceans and ponds. You're going to have a carbon cycle. You're going to have all the things that we see in the Earth's climate. This isn't to say that there aren't other possibilities that could be conducive to life. We're just going to pick one we know. I keep, I keep feeling like I'm in the class. I'm adding all these qualifications, but I think it's really important to emphasize them because that there are assumptions in what I'm about to follow into, which could be relaxed. Okay, with those provisos in mind, let's go. Where is then the location of the habitable zone? Well, we already saw in our discussions about the continuous habitable zone around the sun is that as the sun ages, it's going to get brighter. And so the habitable zone has moved to different places at different times in the sun's lifetime. I can write that as a fairly straightforward equation. If I simply define habitable zone in terms of solar radiation at the surface of the planet, which is basically that equilibrium temperature calculation we did before. And I assume an Earth-like planet, so I've collapsed all those constants about albedos and everything else together. Then what I get is that the habitable zone, well, that should have been an equal sign, not a semicolon. God, PowerPoint does weird things when I take it from home to my office computer. Should be equal to between 0.95 and 1.4 astronomical units scaled by the square root of the luminosity of the star relative to the sun's luminosity. Let's do a couple of examples. Okay, let's take the sun. Right now, L is equal to L sun. So L over, sun over L sun is 1. The square root of 1 is 1. So not surprisingly, the habitable zone is between 0.95 and 1.4 AUs. If I have an A0 star, which has a luminosity of 80 solar luminosities, I stick L equals 80 L sun over here. L sun drops out. And I basically multiply 0.95 and 1.4 by the square root of 80. And I get between about 8.5 and 12.5 astronomical units. So an A0 star might be, for example, the star Vega in the the summer sky. Vega is is a very classic A0 main sequence star. It's It's 80 odd solar luminosities. If, in fact, Vega had habitable planets around it, they'd be between 8.5 and 12.5 AUs. If any of you ever read the novel or saw the movie Contact, one of the places in there that had habitable life was Vega, or for whatever reason. Maybe that was just Stargate. We don't know. It's a really weird book. Um, but that's where it would be. You would not have an Earth in an Earth-like orbit because it'd be too close to the bright star and it'd be too hot. It would have to be out more like... 8.5 to 12 AU, out where we find Jupiter and Saturn in our own solar system. Take a lower luminosity star. Take a little red dwarf, a little M5 red dwarf. 8% the luminosity of the sun. So I put 0.0, point, I'm sorry, 0.8% the luminosity of the sun. The square root of 0.008 in there, multiplied by that, puts a habitable zone between 0.08 and 0.12 astronomical units. That's way inside the orbit of Mercury in our own solar system. You have to get very up close and personal to a M M M red dwarf star to be the point where you've got enough warmth from that feeble, poopy, cool little star to actually liquefy water on the surface of an Earth-like planet. That's really close. You'll also notice, and you can do the math sort of up here, the width of the habitable zone is also changing. Around the Earth, or somewhere around the Earth, around the Sun, the width of the habitable zone is about 0.45 AUs. 
around this Vega-like A star, it's about 4 AUs wide. Around this M star, it's 0.04 AUs. So not only does the habitable zone get further away from the star, it gets broader. There's a bigger range of space that you have that might have habitable planets in it. So this might imagine that you might be tilting the possibility of finding planets to the hotter stars because they have physically larger spaces that could be habitable zones. But as we'll see in a moment, there are some other problems with those bigger, more luminous stars. So the bottom line to take away is the size of the habitable zone scales roughly like the square root of the star's luminosity, and the brighter stars have not only wider habitable zones, but those habitable zones are also further away. Let's put it all together graphically. Now, I, I've squashed the solar system into a logarithmic scale between 0.1 astronomical units and 10 astronomical units. So I kind of squeeze the planets all together. On the vertical axis here, I've got little tiny models with the right colors and the right physical size relationships for an M, K, G, F, and A stars. We're going to ignore the O and B stars because they live too short. They don't have billion-year lifetimes. So we're just going to pay attention to the A, F, G, K, M stars. The sun is here, in fact I put down a G2 star, and this is roughly the positions of the planets in our solar system of exaggerated size for visibility. And this sort of S-shaped green band is the location of the conservative habitable zone for all of those stars. So let's go from, for, for the sun, not surprisingly, it's between about 0.95 and 1.4 AUs, and of course the earth is nice and comfortably inside the habitable zone. For the A stars, the calculation we just did in A0 star, the habitable zone is between 8.5 and 12.5 AUs. Now because I'm using a logarithmic scale here, you kind of make the difference in width kind of harder to see. But you can see that the habitable zone for an A0 star is about where we find a Jupiter or Saturn in our own solar system. Go down to an F star, it's out about 1.5 to 2.2 AUs, so just past the orbit of Mars and out kind of into the, starting getting out into the asteroid belt from the point of view of our solar system. For K stars, again, a cooler star, lower luminosity, habitable zone moves in, and in fact, a planet like Mercury would actually be within the habitable zone of kind of a K5 star in the way I did this particular calculation. And finally, an M star, every single planet in our solar system would be in the frozen outer parts of an M star system if it was in the same distance from the M star as from our sun. Now, you'll also notice the line gets narrower and narrower as I go down. So it's kind of this big sort of bent cone sort of rolling its way up through here. So the fact that it's a bent cone reflects the fact there's a lot of details in what goes on here in the main sequence. So this picture is going to be kind of our icon for our discussion. We're going to see that there is actually a fairly wide range of habitability, but we're going to end up with planets very close in for the low-mass stars, which are low-luminosity main-sequence stars, and planets way far out with big, fat habitable zones for these A stars and F stars that are the highest luminosity, highest-mass stars that still meet our criterion of being stably shining for at least a billion years. Because we're gonna, we've already excluded the O and B stars because they just they just live too fast and die too young in order to be able to have any kind of stable life around them at all. Any kind of, they probably don't even form planets for all we know, unless there's some mechanism for forming planets that's way way faster than any physics we've been able to figure out. 
So that would seem to be part of the answer. It would tell us where we should be looking. Close to M stars, far from A stars, and kind of in between. Fortunately, it's not that simple. If the habitable zone was all there was to the question, then we could basically just go off and run around. But, unfortunately, there's a couple of other details that come into play with the systematics of where those habitable zones fall. There's three factors that I'm going to outline, which seem to be the three most important once you get past this for saying, once you've put a planet in its habitable zone, is it of necessity habitable? Just because there's liquid water, is there a possibility that there are other factors which might offset the liquid water and all the other advantages and, in fact, make the place uninhabitable? The first of these is if the planets get very close to their parent stars, they run a risk of becoming tidally locked to those stars. By tidally locking, meaning that their, or their rotation becomes synchronized to their orbits, and they always keep the same face towards their parent star. That turns out to be a problem, as we're going to see in a second. If you have a low-mass M star, what we find is that low-mass M stars, well, in terms of their main sequence lifetime, seeming to be the big winner. They can live for a trillion years, just burning their hydrogen away at a low, slow rate. But it turns out they're anything but quiet stars, especially when they're younger. It's a little bit less so when they're older. Turns out that low-mass M stars are magnetically very active and, in fact, have very, very large stellar flares. Sometimes things called super flares, things that are a million times more intense than the biggest solar flares in the Earth. And these may, in fact, produce enough ultraviolet and X-ray radiation to be really bad for life on any worlds that get in their way. Some of these things flare like every other day. Some of these things are really intense. So this may, in fact, negate the obvious advantage of an M star being a fairly luminous shiner for a very long time. Right? If you're going to wait for life to arise, if it's going to have a trillion years, it's practically forever from an evolutionary point of view. The other possible place where we might have problems is excess ultraviolet radiation. We know even on a relatively cool star, cool-ish star like the sun, it wasn't until the Earth's atmosphere built up enough ozone that there was enough ultraviolet shielding from atmospheric ozone that life actually got a foothold on the planet. Marine life probably emerged on this planet three and a half billion years ago, within about a billion years after the formation of the Earth. It wasn't until about, what was the number, about 400 odd billion years, 400 odd million years ago, that there was enough ozone in the atmosphere that plants and later animals crawled up onto the surface. Because anything that got out onto the bare surface of the Earth before there was ozone protection was basically so zapped by ultraviolet radiation it was sunburned to death. The only place you could get life before the formation of the ozone layer was deep in the oceans. So take a star which is even hotter than the sun, produces even more of its radiation in the ultraviolet, it may in fact sterilize planets, right? If any of you have ever worked in a biology lab or ever seen you know, television shows about you know, biology labs that work with really nasty pathogens, they use intense ultraviolet radiation to sterilize their glassware. So imagine basically sterilizing entire planets with ultraviolet radiation. So not only is it a possibility of really dangerous mutations, but you really crank it up, you basically UV flood the things and you just sterilize them. So you never even give life a chance. So those are the factors. Let's look at these in some detail. Well, basic physics. If you take a small body and you put it very close in orbit to its parent body, you will actually get tides raised on the smaller body by the gravity of the big body that will, over a certain amount of time, tidally lock the rotation of that smaller body to its orbit. 
There are abundant examples of this all over the solar system, no further away than our own moon. Okay? The moon's rotation period is exactly synchronized with its orbital period. The moon's day is exactly as long as its, as its, as its month, how long it takes to go around the Earth. This is why the moon always keeps the same face towards the Earth. We never see the backside or the far side of the moon. We always see the same seas, the same maria, the, you know, the same craters and mountains every single time. And that's because the moon is rotating exactly as fast as it's orbiting, so it basically always keeps facing the same point on the Earth. It's called synchronous rotation. Similarly, we see the same thing out on the Galilean moons. Io, Europa, Ganymede, and Callisto are all tidally locked to the immense gravity of the large body of Jupiter, and they all keep the same face towards Jupiter. Now, this is, of course, an example of moons. We also see the effect with planets. In our own solar system, none of the planets are one-to-one tidally locked into synchronous rotation, but Mercury is pretty close. Mercury actually is in a three-to-two ratio of rotation to orbit. So it completes three rotations in every two orbits around the, around the sun. Because it's in a long enough elliptical orbit, it broke up the one-to-one tidal locking. But it could happen. If I put a planet in a circular orbit, if I put Mercury in a circular orbit around the sun at the point of its closest approach to the sun on its elliptical orbit, Mercury would be locked one-to-one into synchronous rotation with the sun. It's only because of the long elliptical orbit that it slightly breaks out of it, but it's strongly influenced. Mercury's rotation is determined by the sun's tidal field. So this is actually a fairly important process. Now, it takes time for this to occur, though. Things do not become immediately tidally locked just because you put them close to their tidal bodies. Let's take the example of the moon, for example. We expect when the moon formed out of the giant impact that made the moon, it was initially very rapidly rotating. There's good evidence, in fact, that the moon probably was very rapidly rotating. There's a lot of factors that you can see from the observed properties of the moon today. Now, the Earth's just a whole lot bigger than the moon, so it raises body tides, if you will. The line sort of through the center of the moon to the center of the Earth, the moon is stretched out along that line by the tidal forces, by basically the fact that gravity on the near side of the moon is slightly larger than gravity on the far side, and it kind of does a taffy pull. Now, if the moon is rapidly rotating, as it, rota- as it orbits around the Earth, it will try to turn through its own tidal bulge. What turning through its own tidal bulge means is one part of the moon is basically going to get squeezed and stretched as it goes through. It always gets stretched along the Earth-Moon line. Well, if you squeeze and stretch, squeeze and stretch, we've already talked about that. It's called tidal heating. Where does the energy come from? The energy gets taken away from the moon's rotation. So as you heat up, you steal energy from the rotation of the moon and you put it into heating the interior. As you steal energy from the rotation, the moon slows down. As the moon begins to slow down, it gets squeezed and stretched at a much lower pace until finally it slows down so much that it orients its tidal bulge and its rotation so it no longer turns through its tidal bulge. The stretching stops. When the stretching stops, the heating stops and the energy interchange stops. And the moon basically synchronizes. So it's a process that takes some time. Basically, this tidal dissipation, this tidal squeezing and stretching, stops when the two lock together, when the rotation exactly equals the the, the orbital period. And this happened in the moon fairly quickly, within a few hundred, you know, basically with about a billion years or so. 
I think that's the right time scale. I probably said that wrong, and I'll hear from somebody. So now, when I look at the moon, the red dot here is like, say, a little red dot on the surface of the moon. It always faces towards the Earth. So you'll notice that I complete one full rotation with respect to the background stars in the time it takes me to complete one full orbit. And that's what we call synchronous rotation. That's interesting. Turns out that you can compute what this tidal locking time scale is. This is one of those few formulas you'll never have to use, but it demonstrates to you how it works. The tidal locking scale is a trillion years multiplied by the ratio of the distance of the planet from its parent star to the sixth power. So it's very, very sensitive to where you are and multiplied by the mass of the parent star or one over the square of the mass of the parent star. Okay, so the bigger the parent star, the faster the tidal locking period, the closer you are, the faster, the shorter the tidal locking time scale. When you put all these pieces together and you say, okay, where am I going to evaluate this? I'll just pick a number. Say, let's say four billion years. How long, how close do you have to be to your parent star such that you will become tidally locked to that star within four billion years? Why four billion years? It's about the age of the Earth. The answer turns out to be, when you do the algebra, about 0.4 astronomical units times the mass of the star to the one-third power, the cube root. So it's a weak power, weak function of the mass. Okay, what does this mean for us? Well, let's go back to this picture here. Okay, the equations are really not as important as the result. Remember this picture here of where is the habitable zone relative to stars of different masses and brightnesses? Okay, so remember, main sequence is a mass sequence. M stars are low mass, A stars are high mass. Your habitable zone moves in as you go to lower mass, lower luminosity stars. If I take that formula, where is the tidal locking radius? That's this red diagonal line. Okay, through this diagram, high mass stars have a tidal locking radius further away, like the cube root of the mass. Low mass stars have a tidal locking radius that's closer by the cube root of the mass. For a sun-like star, it's at 0.4 astronomical units. 0.4 AU is just outside the orbit of Mercury. The only reason, again, as I said, that Mercury isn't tidally locked is because it's on a long elliptical orbit. It spends a lot of its orbit outside 0.4 AUs as well as inside. That's just a special case. So anything inside this line, anything to the left of this red line, will be tidally locked by 4 billion years or less. In four billion. So it's 4 billion years to tidally lock at 0.4 AU for one solar mass and progressively less like the one-sixth power of the distance. So this sort of sets a limit. Everything inside will be tidally locked today. So what, notice what this happens is the tidal locking moves closer to M stars, further from A stars. So for everything from kind of K through A, tidal locking is way inside the habitable zone, way inside the inner limit of the habitable zone. So if you have a planet out here in the habitable zone, be it around an A star, an F star, or a G star, or even a K, most K stars. That planet is far enough away that it's under no risk of getting tidally locked. But once you get down to M stars, you fall inside the tidal locking radius. Tidal locking is a problem because you're keeping the same face towards your star. So you have no day and night. You have just a day side and a night side. Your day side is constantly facing its star and getting roasted. The night side is constantly facing the cold of space and is freezing out. 
This is a problem. This can lead to extremely unstable weather patterns. You get a massive global wind blowing from the hot side to the cold side. That could help you. It could actually basically distribute the heat around the planet, but you've got to have a pretty good size atmosphere to redistribute the heat from your near side to your far side to kind of even out the temperatures. You don't want kind of a half ice planet on one side, half steam planet on the other. It's a bad thing probably for life. So the thinking is that if you get into a tidally locked situation with a planet in its habitable zone, you're going to be in pro have a problem. It's going to be really hard to understand how such planets will have stable climates. They won't have completely wacky weather that might not be really, really bad for you know, surface life of the kind we might be looking for. So this might be a real problem. We just don't know how much of a problem it is yet. It might be, in fact, that planets can make up for this relatively straightforwardly. So that's tidal locking. Now, M stars, it turns out, also have another problem. They're magnetically active. And they're so active, they can produce extremely powerful stellar flares. Here's a little cartoon of one of these going off. Some of these stellar flares are so intense, they basically almost, in x-rays, outshine the entire star for the brief period of the flare. Solar flares, we experience all the time. There are solar flares occasionally big enough to knock out electronics on satellites. Um, there have been solar flares in the 1960s, for example, that brought down the entire U.S. power grid, Okay, basically by causing such a surge of energy into the U.S. power grid that all the breakers threw. Those are really big flares, and they're pretty rare, every couple decades. Some of these stars have flares that are a thousand or a million times more intense than anything we've ever seen from the sun. These things throw out tremendous amounts of ultraviolet radiation, tremendous amounts of x-rays. Now, if they blow out in a direction opposite your star, you go, oh, man, big flare, that's too bad. If they blow out towards you, badness. Could be really bad. But it's kind of an ambiguous one. If you look at the literature on whether are flares bad, yes or no, Super flares probably are bad. You could imagine a super flare, something that gets up to a sort of a million sun-type flares, could in fact potentially sterilize the surface of a planet. Just blast it with so much radiation that basically you kill everything on the day side of the planet. If it's tidally locked and all your life is on the warm day side, you're screwed. Basically, life ends. But big super flares are pretty rare. There's another... Th school of thought that says, well, wait, wait, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait. Remember, one of the ways in which evolution proceeds is by mutation, basically tweaking the genome so that you lead to genetic diversity and you give other possible body plans, other possible metabolisms, other different configurations a chance to bust out into an ecological niche. One of the problems of having boring life, if you have no stresses on that life, it never evolves. You've got to stress life to make it evolve. So it might be that if you go through a magnetically active phase relatively early in your life, as these M stars age, they become magnetically less active because the magnetic activity is related to their internal rotation, which slows down over time. That it might, in fact, stimulate evolution on a planet that might otherwise be pretty boring. So it's a two-edged sword. Too much flaring, and you just sterilize the place just enough might actually kickstart evolution into, into biodiversity. So it's not hard to weigh, how to, not really clear how we should weigh flares. Could be a problem, could be not. So we're going, to leave our, we're going to leave our minds open. Basically, we might not look around those unusual, very rapidly rotating M dwarfs. 
that are going to be the super flares. Those probably are pretty bad. But not everybody is a super flare in the M stars. So M stars are still in play. Tidal locking, again, could be bad, but there may be ways around it. It's kind of ambiguous. So even though we'd like to toss out M stars, it's not sure. Not sure yet. The other end of the spectrum, it's a little easier to make, make a call. If you look at the spectrum of a star like an M star, most of its light is out in the infrared. Pretty benign, not very much ultraviolet. So except for an occasional flare, sustained long-term ultraviolet light on, this, on the planets around an M star, pretty benign. It's not going to be a very bad place to have a surface. In fact, it might even be pretty good. You don't need a whole lot of ozone to shield the surface from an M star. G stars, yeah, there's a lot of ultraviolet from the sun. Enough so that if we lost our ozone layer, we'd all have to live underground. Okay, so pretty much with G stars, you're pretty sure you've got to basically develop a shielding atmosphere or you've got to have life under, in marine conditions or underneath ice if you're in a cold, cold type of planet. So it's pretty clear you need some kind of UV shielding from a G star, but there's also lots of visible light to help you out and give you warmth. A stars with temperatures up around 10,000 degrees Kelvin, they emit the majority of their radiation in the ultraviolet. And they continually emit it, and it's relentless and it's bright. So a very large fraction of the energy from like an A star, in this case it's an 18,000 degree Kelvin star, is a huge amount of UV radiation. And here again is how much UV radiation is too much UV radiation? There aren't really good calculations. How much mutation is bad? How much mutation drives evolution? How much mutation sterilizes the place? So the problem is, and that's why I use the, the qualifier potentially sterilizing. So hard ultraviolet stars, really hot stars, are not going to be very conducive. We're probably not going to want to spend a lot of time looking for planets around A stars. Despite having really big habitable zones, they are very inhospitable because they're saturated in ultraviolet radiation. And we know that's bad for life. So we're probably going to end up pulling down the upper mass limit for where we're going to look for planets to where we start getting into stars with serious ultraviolet radiation output. They may, in fact, have big habitable zones. They may have lives longer than a gig a year or two. But the UV radiation could be a real deal killer for it. So we really have to worry about the potential for UV sterilization of the planet. Where did those come from? Hmm. I should be careful who I steal my slides from. Um, so in our searches for stars that might harbor habitable planets, the first thing we want to do is get rid of those that do not have stable energy sources, that do not shine for long periods of time. So we're going to exclude all the giants and supergiants, exclude all the white dwarfs. We don't need to look at those anymore. They may have once held life, but no more. They're no longer stable, stable energy sources. Very short-lived stars like O and B stars don't have enough time to make planets, give life a foothold, no time for evolution to occur. They blow themselves up, and that's just bad for the planets all the way around. But also, we might, in fact, lower the limit down from O stars down into A stars that become ultraviolet bright. And so I'm going to be pretty conservative here. I'm basically going to cut my line pretty tight here. I'm going to basically cut out most of the A stars in this line. But understand that the bottom of this purple zone here is pretty fuzzy. We're also going to have a little bit of problem down here in the M stars. Tidally locking can become a problem, and flaring can become a problem. So this is where we're going to search. And that's what we're going to pick up over the next week.